good to be back with you this afternoon. Once again, grateful for the presence of each one that's able to be here, that you made it important to you to be here, and that you contributed to our, our gathering this afternoon, and appreciate your contribution, and I've been built up. I really uh, enjoyed all of the songs, uh, particularly, I don't know that I'd heard that one that we just sang, and I really liked that song very much. So. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of your, your assembly today, for, to share with you from God's Word. And As I said this morning, uh, again, it's my desire that you'll be able to take and find practical application of God's Word in your life and that you'll be uh, benefited by our, our study uh, together today, uh, not only uh, this morning, but again this afternoon. A wise man said in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse number 13, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Uh, the things that we talked about this morning um, are relatively simple concepts from God's Word. Um, intellectually speaking, it's, it's not some great difficulty to wrap our mind around those things that, that came out of God's Word, but uh, no doubt about it, change is difficult. Change is hard, and, and we have the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and the idea that the wise man put out there of an old and foolish king who will no longer be admonished. I think about uh, the times when you have an opportunity to maybe teach a young child. Uh, you see them doing something and you, and you just walk up and you show them a better way and how their face kind of lights up at, at the knowledge of, wow, man, that's, that's so much better than what I was doing. And they, they kind of get excited about that. And I think about the way that we tend to be as we, as we grow, as we age as we get a few years uh, it tends to become a pride becomes a problem and anytime somebody suggests that maybe we give something a different approach we take that kind of personally and uh, maybe we don't we don't like that advice as much and um, I know it, it's quite obvious to me some things get uh, increasingly difficult the more years go by I, I know this weekend I, we were in this this large room with uh, lots of people in it, and I, I, it really dawned on me how much more difficult it is to hear <laughs> than it used to be at times uh, just a few years back. I, I know uh, things that I used to do physically uh, on a regular basis, I, I do those things occasionally now, and I, I immediately think that wasn't very smart for me to do that that way. I should have done that a, a different way. I should change the way that I think about what I'm able to do or what I should do or, or things like that. And so it is difficult to change. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. That, that uh, is obvious enough, uh, self-evident, if, if you will, when, especially when something has become a habit, especially if we don't uh, practice what we, we study from God's Word this morning, uh, that we change the way that we think about that. Once that thinking has been changed, that mindset has been changed, and a lot of times that, that, that habit is a lot easier to change, but we try to get the cart before the horse, if you will. So as we pick up in our study of repentance this afternoon, and, and I mentioned this morning where the rubber meets the road or the, the practical application of that, uh, we read from 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 9 through 11. I'd like to quickly just reread that uh, this afternoon. He says in verse number 9, Now I rejoice now that you were made sorry, or sorry, I'm apologizing here and starting over. <clears throat> Got a little bit of a lunch fog, and I have the easy job this afternoon. Y'all have the hard job. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, 
but that you, ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And so he makes reference to a situation, and he paints a, a contrast, of, uh, a, a distinct difference between the sorrow of this world and godly sorrow. And I tried to maybe chart some of the differences. I, I charted what he listed there under uh, godly sorrow and, and things that flowed from or resulted from godly sorrow, this carefulness, clearing, indignation, fear, uh, longing, zeal, revenge, all of those things, and, and kind of contrast that to the sorrow of the world. And you think about the sorrow of the world and the sorrow or remorse, if you will, that we often feel when sin is exposed in our lives. And we've got to be honest with ourselves about which sorrow it is. Because he says one sorrow produces death and, and the other one produces repentance not to be repented of. So one of them is what we're looking for. The other one is very dangerous. And so when we think about how we respond to realization or exposure of, of sin, of failure to do what God would have us to do, is it something that uh, maybe we just we, we get depressed about or we wallow. And he talks about this carefulness uh, to be full of care. Um, and uh, defining that uh, from the lexicon and things is about giving urgent attention to. And there's a, there's a clear contrast uh, between what godly sorrow produces and what the world produces. We know that the sorrow of the world, or exposure, if you will, uh, of sin or uh, guilt or whatever it, that it might be, getting caught, uh, getting exposed, having that information known, uh, what the natural tendency, the carnal mind tends to do is justify, right? We make an excuse. Uh, we see all the way back in Genesis uh, when God was disobeyed, the finger pointing started. Well, it was, it was the woman that you gave me. Well, the serpent. He... And we, we had this finger pointing, this justification that, that tries to take place. And that's not uncommon today. I know when things aren't like they're supposed to be, um, it can get difficult at my house to get to the bottom of, of the matter. There's four teenagers, and then there's uh, my, my wife and myself. And, you know, Eric and I, sometimes we start really uh, getting into the kids, and we're in this investigation, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And then we find out that it was... It was one of us, so maybe we even forgot that we did it. Or and so that really doesn't help our credibility the next time that it comes around. But are we looking to make an excuse, to justify, to find somebody to blame? And that seems to be the very uh, popular common way of doing things. Or uh, what, is, what is godly sorrow? And we're going to look at the, some, uh, expound on some of these concepts, but... You know, really, godly, the sorrow of the world tends to be based on uh, the discomfort of the symptoms. People don't necessarily care about change. They just want the consequences of these bad actions to go away. They don't want to deal with the fallout from these poor choices. And so they want relief 
a lot of times from these symptoms of the behavior, but they don't want to change the behavior itself, and then that leads to uh, concealing, hiding, and, and greater skill and deception at deceiving even oneself and, and others to, to keep a lid on things and to keep from being exposed. Um, when we think about this idea of repentance, going back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 1, as I made mention, this is not... Uh, a difficult concept. In Hebrews 6, 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And it makes sense that something so simple yet so critical to Christianity would be exactly where Satan would attempt to distort and attack and destroy if the definitions can get changed the terminology and we have the wrong idea about what repentance is and that's the foundation then we're going to have serious problems in the structure and so we've got to get that that definition might summarize it this way christians ought to be experts on the subject of repentance even young christians we ought to be experts on the subject and we ought to by reason of use as, as hebrews makes mention to by practicing in our lives we ought to be able to teach it to others and so it's, it's very important that we realize how critical, how foundational repentance is. In 2 Timothy 2.25, it says, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And over and over again, we see this concept of the transformation that needs to take place in the mind. It's acknowledging the truth. It's rejecting whatever false things that we have come to believe for the true things that God reveals to us and, and changing the way that we think about those things. So I titled those things that he listed there in Corinthians as evidences. He says the so godly sorrow worketh repentance. And then he begins to list these things that godly sorrow produced in them. And so if the question is, am I practicing biblical repentance? And I'm trying to examine that. I'm trying to be honest with myself and come to a conclusion that it comes from God's Word. And this is the passage for us. If we can find evidence of these things in our life when we recognize error, then we realize that we're allowing godly sorrow to produce biblical repentance, real repentance. And that's what needs to happen. That's toward salvation, not to be repented of. He talked about this carefulness, and that word is defined as, as a haste. Uh, Acts chapter 10.33 shows us this concept. Uh, if you're familiar with the passage, um, Cornelius has seen in a vision that he needs to send for Peter so that he can hear words uh, that he needs to hear to, to be saved. And this is what he says in Acts 10.33. He says, Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. And so... Think about this vision that Cornelius received and think about all the possible responses. Well, you know what? He caught me right in the middle of a war season. Uh, I'm a, I am a centurion and you know, I've got a lot of wartime responsibility and it's gonna be better if we wait till winter to maybe talk about all the salvation. So that's not what he did. He, he got a vision of what he needed to do and it produced haste in him. The psalmist said in Psalms 119 and verse 60, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. And so if we're going to be honest with ourselves, are we practicing biblical repentance? Is godly sorrow 
running its course and producing repentance in us as it should, is there a sense of urgency about it? Is there a sense of this needs to get done? God said this needs to get done. It needs to get done now. And I don't need to make delay. He talks about the clearing of yourself. And that word is defined as apology, not in the sense uh, that we think of it as I'm sorry, but in the sense of making a defense as an attorney would do, uh, as our defense attorney would do if we were uh, going to court or if we were uh, maybe taking or pleading our case before a judge, we would offer a defense for whatever our actions be. And that's the idea of this clearing. In Psalm 51, in verse number 4, the psalmist said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil on thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You know, I have gone before a judge before a few times in my life, uh, traffic violation, things like that, and they, they inform you of the p different pleas that you can enter, and you can plead guilty, or you can plead not guilty, or you can plead no contest. I didn't understand. What does that mean? Well, the judge explained to you, well, no contest means that you're not going to say that you're guilty, but you're, not gonna, you're going to receive the consequences of being guilty, <laughs> essentially. So it's kind of this middle of the road. I'm not going to put up a fight, but I'm not going to try to put up the fight of proving that I, I didn't do it or, or whatever the case might be. So you've got this middle road type option. But the apology, the defense that is proper when we're not in line with God's word is this defense. It's entering a guilty plea. It's, it's owning it. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's not pointing fingers at somebody else. There's not somebody else to blame for where I've fallen short. It's me. It's my fault. I'm wrong. You're right, God. And you're always right. And you always will be right. And that's the, that's the plea. That's the apology. That's the defense that's entered when we are wrong, when we do things that are contrary to God's word. In Proverbs 28, 13, he says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaking them shall have mercy. Confessing and forsaking, that's not no contest. That's entering a guilty plea. That's saying I was wrong and I shouldn't have done that and accepting that. And that's an evidence of godly sorrow working repentance in our lives. So what vexation. And that has to do with the vexation of spirit. And I believe that's illustrated for us in Psalms 38 uh, verses 3 through 8. Where the psalmist said, There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. And there is a distinct difference between our failures actually bothering us and saying, nobody's perfect. Because saying, well, nobody's perfect leads to, it's not that big of a deal. But as we gathered around the table this morning, we turned our minds back to the reality that it's a big deal. Sin was a big deal held Jesus, that nailed Jesus to the cross. He died because of those sins. And to just go, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Doesn't get us to where we need to be. It doesn't produce in us the things that it needs to produce in a 
coming out of darkness and into light and to be changed and to be a holy people uh, because we've been called to be holy as He is holy. It doesn't produce the things that it needs to produce. This isn't, it isn't just wallowing around and, and not getting anything done. This, I think, obviously uh, illustrates what we might call a, a, a depressed state. There's obviously a, a very troubled soul here because of sin. But when we put that together with the rest of these things, this state is one that doesn't just get walled around in with, with no action. It's a state that increases these other things, the haste and the zeal and the other things that we talked about, because it really bothers us, it really discomforts us that we have failed our God in this way. He talks about fear, and that fear uh, of God is contrasted uh, to, uh, to other types of fear, Godly fear does different things. When you think about when you're afraid of something, what's your response to that? And then we compare that to godly fear. In Proverbs 9, verse number 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And so the proper reverence and respect for God is the beginning of wisdom to recognize and to realize, as was, as was mentioned in the prayer uh, this afternoon, that he's uh, the great God that formed everything that his voice brought things into existence to uh, reverence and honor him the way that we should. That's the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 16, verse number 6, he says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So typically, worldly things, worldly fear, causes us to distance ourselves from the things that we're afraid of, right? If you're afraid of the dark, you stay in the light. But godly fear is opposite in nature. If we have the proper reverence and fear from God, then we stay away from the things that God has told us to stay away from. Thus, we draw closer to God. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh unto you. We become closer to the Lord through godly fear because godly fear has us departing from things that are bad for us, things that he has prohibited. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And again, this idea of a coming judgment, that everything is going to come to life, that nothing's going to remain secret, that ought to change us. That ought to put reverence and respect for God and His Word into our, our hearts and our lives and cause us to act and to think differently. He talks about what uh, desire that it puts in us. The vehement desire. In Romans 10, I think Paul expresses this type of desire when he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God is for, for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He had a fervent, a great desire for these individuals to be saved. Do we have that desire, A, for ourselves to be saved, B, for those that we have influence and impact on? Do we have that kind of desire when it comes to getting where we ought to be, making the changes that need to be made and not just going, well, nobody's perfect, or it's really hard, or you know, at my age, people don't really change, or some other excuse to not move in the direction that we need to move. In Colossians 3, verse number 2, he talks about setting your affection on things above and not on the things of the earth. Sometimes we act like 
desires are unchangeable. We just desire. I, that's just who I am. I just I desire those things. People talk that way. That's just that's the tendency that I have. Well, change it. Is that easy? No. Can it be done? Yes. And that's what Colossians three is talking about. You change your affection from these worldly things that are that are meaningless, that are vain, that are vexation of spirit, and you place them on things that matter on things above, not on things of this world. And so we change those desires to be in accordance with God's Word. He talks about the zeal. And I think that's well illustrated in his passage in Philippians 3, verse number 8. He says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I think that is a statement of zeal of a fervor of spirit to be able to look back at the loss of, of all these things that are so important to so many people and not only to say I've incurred the loss of all those things I've suffered the loss of all those things but to value them in the way that he valued them you know a lot of times if we make a little bit of a sacrifice you know that's a that's kind of a a bragging point of how much we gave up. Look at how valuable of a thing that I gave up. And he values those things that he gave up equivalent with manure. And that shows the fervor of spirit that he has for this, for this one thing, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so you see that kind of zeal to be right with God, to be on the right side, to be on the winning side, and to be uh, there at the resurrection of the just. He says what revenge and that word is defined as, as punishment, self-discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, 25, he says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things, has self-control in all things. He says, They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. And he talks about this process of self-discipline in this passage. I keep under my body. That's an interesting word study to me when you uh, begin to define those terms. Uh, I keep under my body. To buffet. Uh, the definition in Strong's, I believe, is uh, to strike under the eye as a pugilist and adversary. And so he's using this illustration, and he, he makes this allusion, I think, to shadow boxing, not as one that beats the air like a, like a shadow boxer might do, where he's doing the dancing, and he's dancing around the bag, and he's practicing for this upcoming fight. He says, that's not the kind of fight that I'm fighting. But he goes back to that boxing reference to talk about self-discipline. And he says, that's what I do to the body. Like a boxer would punch his opponent under the eye, I do that to my body for spiritual reasons. Discipline my body. 
And that's this process of self-correction, of self-discipline. Many ways that that could be done. Uh, but he makes mention to that and referring all of it back to self-control, to temperance. The one that strives for that trophy, the one that strives for that medal, for that belt or whatever it might be in boxing, they have self-control in all things. They keep under their body. They will punish the body if need be so that the spirit can get the upper hand. And that is a result of godly sorrow. And that is repentance uh, in action. Galatians 5 and verse number 24, he says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. I think that word crucified is one that we, we've gotten so far away from the cross that it, it's easy to read over that and, that and just imagine that word to be that, oh, put, put a few nails in and hang it up on a cross. And that was not the, the whole process of crucifixion. A, a, a gruesome and brutal uh, death sentence. And that's the word that's used to reference uh, those that are Christ, what they do to the flesh and its desires. And so it's a battle against the flesh, and it's a hard battle, and it's hard to change, but we're called to change. And so we need to not let our heart get hardened where that change doesn't become a regular part of our life. In conclusion, this afternoon, repentance is a change in mindset that leads to a reversal of action. We change the way that we think about things, and that causes us to change the way that we act in different situations. Galatians 2, verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Not my will, as Christ prayed, but thy will. And that's what the apostle saying here in Galatians. It's not me going through this life, doing whatever I want, and saying I serve the Lord. It's me going through this life and trying to do the Lord's will in my life and not my own. And so I hope the study of repentance will be a good refresher for you. I hope that it will keep you mindful of the things that we talked about this morning and this afternoon, that we will be constant in that self-examination, that we won't ever become that old and foolish king that will no longer be admonished. We won't ever become arrogant and proud to think that, that we can't be corrected by our study of God's Word by a brother or sister in Christ, by a truth from God's Word revealed to us in whatever uh, capacity that, that might come from, whether we, we might hear that as we're uh, listening to uh, a podcast or, or, or whatever the case might be. Are we going to have the right kind of heart that regularly practices repentance, that when a need for change is recognized, that we start looking for evidence of godly sorrow that's producing repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Lessons yours this afternoon. If you have a spiritual need, we're not in a hurry. We're here to serve one another in love. If we can be of any assistance to you this afternoon, let that be known by having a seat on one's front pews while together we stand and sing the song's been selected.